Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup for Wednesday, September 1st, 2021. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and over the next half hour, we're going to be taking a look at three questions we've been hearing from international educators this past week. For those of you not familiar with the Midweek Roundup, we take these three questions we cover each week from our newsletter that comes out on Mondays. Uh, That's called All the SMIE News Fit to Share. SMIE stands for Social Media and International Education. So we take three of those themes we see in those news stories and we go more in depth into those questions here on the Roundup on Wednesdays. Uh, If you'd like to subscribe, we always drop a link to the most recent edition of the newsletter in the comments section on the Facebook page where those of you who are watching live or on repeat will be able to find that and go more in depth for those stories. But you can also go to smieconsulting.org slash subscribe if you'd like to subscribe to the newsletter, get it in your inbox every Monday morning at 9 a.m. But for now, we'll go to the roundup here. I want to say thank you to those joining live here on Facebook. Obviously, those who can't make it live, watch on repeat or on, you, on our Facebook page or our YouTube channel or those that download us each week as one of our audio-only podcast versions of the Roundup. So thank you for making us a part of your international education journey, and we hope we provide some useful content for you along the way. So today's three questions. First up, how have international enrollments been impacted by COVID-19? Second, is a joint statement on international education enough to spur action? And third, what will the UK do without EU students? We'll answer those three questions and more here on the Roundup today. First question, how have international enrollments been impacted by COVID-19? This is coming primarily from a report from uh, IC3 movements and and IIE. Uh, We are all familiar with IIE, with Open Doors and their uh, work in Project Atlas with global student mobility. Uh, IC3 movements started in India as a kind of a group of uh, uh, universities and those interested in India, but has uh, grown throughout uh, the region in South and East Asia, but has worldwide membership now. Uh, this a joint report uh, considers, uh, and this is from a Pi News article, uh, comp- it considers how global student mobility flows in major world regions have been impacted by the pandemic. And its conclusions show that uh, there are issues related to visas and vaccines, Uh, and uh, travel restrictions, certainly uh, public health policies in certain countries have um, had a significant negative impact on enrollments, international enrollments that had been uh, traditional uh, strengths. This is for those who have been watching the roundup or have been involved in international ed for more than a minute in the last year and a half. Certainly this is not coming in any, as any shock to you. Uh, but what's, uh, what has happened is uh, the findings, many, many countries who have experienced these drop-offs in new enrollments have certainly seen that they're the majority of greater majority of the students that had been enrolled decided to stay in country rather than take a risk and go home Um, meaning in many cases they've not been able to uh, return home uh, during the pandemic to visit family or take or care for loved ones so uh, that care for current international students has made uh, has become the focus of the of these institutions that have relied on international students for so long 
and there were really border closures visas vaccines uh, still to this to this to this month remain um, clear barriers uh, we already know three of the of the three of the top receiving countries Australia New Zealand China are still in all intents and purposes closed to new international enrollments even returning international students are, are not able to return in, in many cases and that's having a long-term impact on uh, on the economies of those countries uh, in negative ways certainly uh, so what uh, this IC3 IIE report certainly concludes are what we've what we certainly know that uh, these uh, these are all linked. Uh, vaccines are are going to be are uh, one of the th one of one of the thresholds in Australia. They have to be at 70 percent before they think about reopening borders. Uh, in New Zealand, they're looking to get all their all their folks vaccinated yet, and surprisingly. In New Zealand, the vaccination rates are abysmally low for a country that has done so well in preventing huge swaths of cases and deaths as a result. Uh, they've been able to contain it fairly well. They've had some recent outbreaks in Auckland, but uh, they, uh, their, their vaccination rates are very low and have, they haven't prioritized that. Same in Australia. They're working up towards that 70 by the end of the calendar year, 70%. So that's a real challenge uh, and that's preventing uh, internal policies from changing in certain countries to allow international students to return in numbers to, for borders to be reopened. In other countries, that's uh, the vaccination piece is will impact a quarantine uh, uh, quarantine requirements. In the UK, if you're not vaccinated, you, you certainly would have that quarantine responsibility for 10 to 14 days. In the US, it's recommended, uh, if not required by the CDC, if you're not vaccinated to, to, to um, quarantine after, upon arrival. Uh, that, but there's really no tracking to, to make sure that works. It's really, and from the student perspective, it's going to be down to the individual institutions as to what those policies are. Uh, I've encouraged all my, uh, all my universities uh, that I'm working with and encourage anyone watching who's on the university side, have you been tracking uh, your students, incoming students, and what, whether they've been able to secure vaccinations? And what are you, what are you doing on the back end for them uh, if they haven't? Are you able to um, put in place some, uh, some policies that, uh, uh, that will accommodate or allow them to get vaccinated upon arrival, take them to the CVS or the local drugstore, where, wherever they need to go to get those vaccinations? Uh, is there going to be a clinic on campus? Some are, and are able to do that, some aren't, depending on state regulations, if you're a state institution or not, and the, how friendly your state is to uh, opening up those things, uh, your campuses, to those types of uh, activities. So the vaccination piece is critical. The visa pieces are critical in terms of uh, access back into the country or to the country for the first time. Uh, we've been talking over the last several months, uh, last year, we've been talking about how certainly last summer the real challenge was there weren't enough or the overwhelming majority of U.S. consulates were still closed for uh, for business and certainly for international students to get visas to come. Uh, there have been those that have been open for emergency emergency use, emergency appointments. Uh, first story here that we'll share on the um, on the visa side is from the Times of India. It's a, ironically the Times of India uh, having a story about Chinese uh, U.S. visas issued to students in China. 
since May, over 85,000 uh, student visas have been issued. That's back up to pre-pandemic levels. So that's certainly encouraging news seeing in our number one source country seeing that. Uh, it's good, but it's not enough because frankly, when you consider it, uh, China uh, has now had, this is the second year of Chinese students not being able, or uh, intended Chinese students trying to get into the country. So in, in effect, we've had, we're back up post pre-pandemic levels, or we're back up to pre-pandemic levels uh, in terms of visa issuance, but we've now had, should have had two years of students that are trying to get visas to come this fall. Uh, though, uh, so it seems like we've got a little bit more than a year, uh, what a normal summer would take. Uh, and they're still processing visas, uh, and they, they've had some hiccups along the way, but they're plow, plowing ahead. So the uh, State Department has recognized in these, in these, in these uh, countries that are so vital for international students coming to the United States, China, and we'll talk about India in a second too, that um, we need those students to have access to visa appointments. So the, in India and China, they've certainly reopened in China as of May, in India as of June, after the first uh, or the wave, Delta wave passed there. Uh, they've been doing yeoman's work, and in India too, uh, the next story uh, is that uh, in 2021, there's been a record number of uh, student visas issued to Indians uh, looking to come to the United States. So more than 55,000 uh, student and exchange visitors have been or will uh, have been issued this year already. So that's a record in India. So that's positive news in uh, China's positive news. But again, it's it should be records uh, or close to record setting numbers, considering the two years of students that are trying to enroll this fall. Those that couldn't get in last year uh, and studied remotely that are applying to come to the U.S. to continue their studies and those that have applied new in this past year to begin their studies with us. So we'll see where that goes. And in India and China, those are the uh, two that everybody talks about and with, uh, with good reason because they account for nearly 50% of all international students in the United States. Uh, the real challenge is for the rest of the world. Uh, and here's where we, get, we do get into some uh, interesting territory. Uh, just saw an article this morning I uh, was referenced in uh, the NAFSA, NAFSA forums uh, from Cato Institute uh, that says as of August 20th, uh, just, just seeing this article this week, 62% of U.S. consulates were fully or partially closed in August. So that's, that's a little bit disconcerting. Um, we had seen the, a good number, or even the majority, were partially operating for emergency use, op, uh, emergency appointments only for students. Uh, that's, that's still uh, still happening. Uh, that uh, we're, we are seeing that for initial student visas, uh, the, the State Department has not yet uh, made commitments to uh, make it easier and to, to, to allow a video or virtual interview rather than a traditional in-person interview. They've done that for students who are applying for visa renewals, but they're not doing that for, or they're waiving their visa requir interview requirement for visa renewals, but not for new visas. Uh, so this is something that, uh, this is, uh, this is something that's, uh, that's troubling in terms of uh, what the future might be. And a lot of sound local circumstances in terms of pandemic. We talked last week about the staffing 
at embassies and consulates. They're only able to do that based on the revenue generated from DS-160 fees, the application for non-immigrant student visa, uh, non-immigrant visas that all students fill out. Uh, that obviously from the last last fiscal year, revenue was down close to 90 to 100 percent in some cases for non-immigrant visa revenue. So that's determining staffing for this year. And obviously there's been prioritization for key sending markets, uh, Brazil, uh, China, in, and India. We've seen that happen. But uh, that's not a global thing yet. Uh, we still see a number of uh, consulates and embassies still closed because they can't they don't have the staff to to to, to fully operate and to do visa um, appointments on a regular basis so certainly many miles to go before we sleep on that one so uh, there's uh, inter- visas and vaccines and and border closures travel restrictions are still uh, going to impact us in the, uh, for this fall here in the u.s but in other countries as well and we'll talk more about uh, that, those implications in the weeks and months to come. Now let's shift gears to our second question. And this is uh, in reference to the joint statement that came out at the end of July at the EDUSA Forum. There's been a lot written about this since. Um, and I'll chip in this week with uh, one of my own uh, pieces on this, on this thought. And uh, the question is, is a joint statement on international education enough to spur action? Now, uh, if for those who have been following uh, my blog series on uh, through IDP Connect on the six P's of strategic international enrollment management, we finished that series last month uh, with uh, peers, and we've talked about that at length here on the Roundup. But uh, after the after the EDUSA forum, uh, I asked my colleagues, "Hey, do you mind if I do this uh, kind of get my thoughts out about this new joint statement in support of international education and what that might lead to?" Uh, it's uh, I call it in my article that I'm referencing today for IDP Connect uh, a unicorn sighting in D.C. Uh, because it is something that is extremely rare, a mythical beast, if you will, that the U.S. Uh, could potentially be moving towards a coordinated government-level international education policy for the country. And that is something that anyone in international education in the States has been calling for as, as soon as they got into the profession and understood the wider implications of go- the lack of government influence on, uh, on, on education policy in the United States after uh, the high school level. And this is something that uh, we all know, I've talked about it before here on the Roundup, that there are three, potentially four major government departments that impact international education in different ways. Uh, Department of Education very mildly impacts it other than some minor Fulbright scholarship money that they have. They don't really impact uh, federal uh, U.S. colleges and universities because that accreditation and approval process other than the financial aid piece is handled through regional accreditors um, and national accreditors for programs. Uh, but you have Department of Homeland Security that has control over uh, the border and immigration benefits for or benefits for uh, non-immigrants and immigrants that come to the U.S. after they arrive. You have Department of Commerce that is their angle, and so DHS more 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 concerned with security and uh, implementation uh, of benefits to uh, monitoring as well. Now you have D. Uh, Department of Commerce, that's uh, main goal is promoting U.S. interests abroad. 
business, U.S. businesses, and one of the one of those most significant pieces is is it international education, the higher ed sector, and other other levels of uh, the U.S. economy that are involved in international education. Uh, their focus is more of money, uh, business focus, um, and then you have Department of State that is very much. Uh, in the public diplomacy mold that uh, they see the, in, in, the bringing in students and scholars from overseas helps uh, create mutual understanding between the U.S. and other countries around the world and that those that study here and go home take what they know, take what they've learned about the United States and become leaders in their countries and hopefully uh, better friends to the United States in the future. So that uh, foreign, student, foreign students today, world leaders tomorrow, that's been a consistent theme of how the uh, State Department talks about uh, international education as a value. Uh, and then you, uh, so those, th those four departments, state, commerce, DHS, and education, all have some piece of the pie in terms of how they can potentially influence uh, government policy. But they don't always communicate and they often are working at cross purposes. So the joint statement is a way to help rally that support in one uh, area that shows for the first time that they're all on the same page. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, as we've talked about, there's been a lot of priorities that have been established in that that uh, seek to provide some kind of structure moving forward. There's call for, uh, from the NAFSA side and some of the higher ed folks, there's been calls for um, a unified approach or a White House level appointment or office uh, to coordinate amongst those four departments as well as with the private sector and, and public universities with the association world that has some sort of say as to how the, how, how the policies are implemented and what policies need to be considered. Uh, so this, there's a lot to this uh, to make it work on, uh, in the United States and it will take a lot of um, a lot of willpower, frankly, and a lot of political capital to make it happen, I think. Um, one of my colleagues who uh, works, uh, one of my best friends, uh, has uh, worked for the State Department for over 30, oh, well, 23 years now, uh, and he, uh, has, uh, he has shared with me on several occasions, particularly as of late with this current administration, they are big idea people. Uh, they like to put out these big ideas fairly, fairly regularly and have been doing so since uh, they took office. Uh, the, the challenge is the implementation piece. Uh, they have the great ideas, uh, but do they put, it, put that, those ideas and uh, create a structure that allows those ideas to actually flourish? So uh, there's a lot of miles to go. So I, I'm, I can't say I'm overly optimistic that this is going to happen, but it's certainly, if followed through on, is, is an absolute watershed uh, moment for the United States uh, that I, I certainly support with all, all I have and will, will do so as long as I can. But what we see in, what I do appreciate with what the, the policy or this joint statement does at least set the framework for are some conversations that acknowledge that in the, in the U.S.'s position in the world, uh, particularly in relation to international student mobility, isn't as strong as it used to be. Uh, that it recognizes that uh, in in their in the um, in the acknowledgement of where we are in the in at this time is that the U.S. is losing ground to our competitors around the world. And if you remember back to my six P series, that's the first P perspective. Uh, having that perspective as you as you kind of sets the framework for how you approach what you're going to do. And in this case, it's talking about. 
uh, about having the right perspective on we are in a competition for students around the world. And our policies in many cases are uh, counterproductive and prohibit uh, free-flowing of students uh, and ideas uh, that uh, we can only benefit from as a nation. So it uh, talks about in, in this joint statement about uh, uh, where, where, the, where the challenges are. Uh, and there's a number of articles. And whenever, whenever you have all higher ed uh, publications and some business ones as well getting on the same page in support of this, you know something's going on. Uh, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a certainly a long time coming. We've seen uh, the last time we saw anything even resembling the, a move towards a, uh, an international ed policy was in April of, 20, of 2000 when uh, President uh, Clinton at the time directed Vice President Gore to kind of take the lead in coordinating a policy uh, uh, for international education. And that, with his defeat in the election that year and then 9-11 shortly after that, any thoughts of that um, policy being, that uh, the policy dream of being implemented died with it. Uh, what, in terms of what next steps are out there, uh, certainly the association world has been very uh, front and center in terms of uh, talking about what that might look like and the pr prioritization of certain things, of um, getting rid of some of those Trump era policies that were very much counterproductive towards uh, a joint national ed international education policy, uh, talking about improving processing times for in, within uh, uh, USCIS uh, within DHS uh, to have a much friendlier customer service focus to talk about um, preserving OPT uh, on the in legal battles, uh, getting rid of that uh, proposal to eliminate DS uh, from duration of status from uh, visa statuses for international students. So there's a lot more. But if this does happen, as I say in my article, it would be the most significant step forward for the United States as a benefit and a promotional tool for the United States uh, since OPT was extended to three years uh, for STEM OPT back in 2008 at the end of the Bush administration. So it will be the true, uh, a bigger game changer than that, frankly, uh, in terms of attracting, uh, setting the stage for the U.S. to begin attracting a wider range of students in more significant numbers and streamlining processes, talking about dual intent for uh, stu a student visa status that would eliminate the 214B denials that we often see for international students. So some really solid things that can come out of this, and I addressed some of that uh, for in, in my article as to what you might want to consider. Uh, and that is followed up by this past week. We saw uh, saw the uh, international or the IEP world uh, intensive English programs uh, get together uh, in their association with English USA. Uh, as well as uh, you, you, you see NAFSA, uh, TESOL, uh, International Association, and UCIEP, the Consortium of University and College Intensive English Programs, uh, and support from ASSET uh, and CEA, uh, the two accrediting bodies for English language programs, have all submitted a joint letter, much like uh, ACE and other association worlds uh, did uh, right, after the uh, right after the joint statement was issued. Uh, the joint statement on principles uh, is supported, obviously, by the IEP world. They've taken huge hits during the pandemic, so we'll see where, where that one goes as well. But there's some, uh, a lot of movement towards this. 
So we're certainly keeping our fingers on this one because it's uh, there's a lot of a lot of movement now. I think uh, towards making this happen. And if government, if leadership within the White House gets on board with this and forms that uh, kind of a White House level. Uh, organization or structure to to facilitate some of the changes that need to be made then we'll we'll see real change happen so we're ways away from that happening but certainly it's a great first step and certainly one that we we need to support and do everything we can to make happen in the united states for sure now last question of the day what will the uk do without eu students and this is a pretty significant piece. Uh, this has all been coming, frankly, uh, since uh, Brexit uh, vote was uh, was made uh, in 2019. We've seen the result, or 2017, excuse me. We've seen this coming down the pike in terms of what uh, uh, EU students had benefited from, kind of in the U.S. terms, in-state tuition status. Uh, but that's gone away now with Brexit. Uh, and individual campuses who have relied on EU students coming to them have had to either come up with their own scholarship schemes to uh, work on partnership programs, two plus two kind of programs, or one plus two or two plus one. Uh, there's been a lot of focus on uh, kind of figuring out what that's, what EU relationships are going to look like for British universities. Uh, and the unfortunately, it hasn't really happened uh, to the extent that it needed to. There wasn't enough prep time. Uh, from the on the university level to really per, per make it happen. So what we're seeing with uh, the UK, we've seen the basically the applications kind of drop off the cliff this year uh, in terms of EU students, uh, and the numbers show I think a 56 yeah 56 pl percent plunge in EU students accepted at British universities for this fall. Uh, so that was um, it was a, there was a 43 percent drop in applications. From the EU, but a 56% drop in uh, those that were have students that were placed. Uh, so that is down from 22,430 last year to just 9,820 this year. So pretty precipitous. Uh, now, what uh, what that means is uh, they have to now pay the equivalent of um, pay pay upfront the the tuition dollars. The 12,300 is the average. Uh, fee, uh, UK university tuition fee, pay that up front. And for this has particularly been an impact in areas of Europe that perhaps aren't as wealthy as those in the western part, part of the continent. So we saw for one university, Coventry, uh, they had, uh, in, had invested heavily in Eastern Europe in recent years, Hungary and Romania in particular. They have, uh, they will, they are saying they're losing 80 percent of its European recruitment because most of their EU students have come from Eastern Europe. So some significant damage to uh, to UK universities. And before this year, Europe, European students as a whole, were the largest single group of students at, represented at UK universities. They are going to be overtaken by Chinese students this fall uh, that were already the largest single country, but now would be the largest group, uh, including including those that uh, we're talking about here today 
uh, with regard to uh, EU students as a, as a continent represented, represented at, at British universities. So the knock-on effect of this has been on UK research that uh, because of the fees that UK universities have lost because these EU students, there was already a drop last year, but we're now seeing uh, this coming fall is going to be an even more significant drop. You're seeing those uh, drops in funding uh, that used to, used, to, um, used to fund research activity at uh, British universities, uh, that, that, that there's going to be some significant shortfalls. So th there are knock-on effects here for, the, for, U for U UK unis in terms of what they're going to be able to do uh, on the research side. So it's, everything's interconnected in higher ed here. Uh, we certainly need to take that into consideration as we make our decisions. Uh, and certainly UK universities that are needing a better way to engage with Europe now. So those traditional uh, exchanges or degree-seeking students aren't happening. Uh, so uh, UK universities either are having to invest in significant scholarships or they're going to uh, have to rely more on partnership developments. And uh, that some, some of the lesser-known institutions are really having to uh, work hard to make those partnerships happen, whether with individual governments in certain countries uh, that they've targeted or with uh, particular universities as they look to expand their footprint in, uh, across the European continent. So a lot to, lot to keep a focus on in, for UK universities this fall. Uh, certainly they're going to see increases in Chinese and, and Indian students, which seems to be a theme running through uh, for many of destination countries this year. Uh, but certainly we'll see what the longer term implications are related to EU students going to the UK. So that's all we have for you this week on the Roundup. I uh, look forward to chatting with you again uh, next Wednesday on September 8th. Uh, just a quick note for those who are also subscribers to the newsletter, uh, we won't be doing a newsletter on Labor Day this week, uh, this coming week, uh, but we'll do a roundup on select stories that we're finding of interest uh, for, uh, for further explanation here on the roundup next week. So until then, we wish you all a very happy Labor Day weekend and enjoy uh, the time off with family. Have a great day. Cheers.